It's July and it's winter time in Ethiopia. Huge thunderstorms bring the rains and in a country where 80% of the population are directly involved in agriculture, it's ploughing time. Ingosia is a medium-sized farmer in the Soda region of central Ethiopia. He has six hectares and ploughs his few fields with oxen and a wooden plough. What time does his day start when you're doing, when you're ploughing and how long do you plough for? Okay, early in the morning, which is at uh, uh, 7 a.m. Okay, okay. Uh, within the day, they may rest for one hour for lunch, and uh, they came back to the plowing, and they may stay up to 5 p.m. The oxen are relatively small. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't have uh, enough money to buy uh, big and more tough oxen for plowing. That's why I have uh, small oxen. The whip you hear never actually touches the animals. They're far too valuable for that. And the ploughing is a very labour-intensive business. <laughs> Just uh, to alarm them, not to uh, injure them. They plow the land for three months repeatedly. You keep plowing it until it's for three months? Yeah. What does that do? What does that do? That is because to, mo- to make the land more smooth and to increase the production. Okay. Uh, it may take about seven months before harvesting. In a bad year, things can go downhill very rapidly for families like Ngusias. We don't have any surviving mechanisms. For instance, if uh, famine occurred, just we try to survive ourselves by taking loans from other uh, uh, loan givers, which is uh, they may take a double of why they. took from that person. So that's our strategy. When was the last time you had a season like that? Before three years, that was happened. I think the, f- the family uh, tried as much as uh, 
to survive by uh, taking uh, what they have. For instance, they may take breakfast or dinner within a day, so they may have one uh, meal within a day. So within that, they try to survive themselves. That was that 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 was uh, uh, the grain which was saved before a year. So they use that one in order to survive by taking only one meal uh, for within a day. It was a very hard time. Yeah, it was very tough. Some 70 million Ethiopians are directly involved in agriculture, and farmers like Ngusia make up the vast majority of these. These millions of farmers are vulnerable to two things, to drought and to price. And the price is set at market. In markets like this one, a few kilometres away from his farm in Sodo, where women sell maize to customers portioned out from large bags. Two of this cup will be one kg. So one kg is about eight bur. Okay, so four bur is about less than 20 cents. Yes. It is. Yeah. Who sets the price? I'm sorry, Wagon. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The market determines the price uh-huh. because she couldn't able to fix the price. Yeah. She's not a producer. Rather, she buys this from the distributors and she sells it in a, in a very expensive price, better than she bought. Majority of the women are a trader. Uh, from uh, they brought the cereal from wholesaler, and then they uh, sell with to the other couples. Uh, it's more some increasing the price. Then they use the profit. Now we are finding the real farmers. This man, what, what? the producer? This what is this? This stiff. This is the Daru material to produce injera. That's a, a, um, a staple food for Ethiopian. Injera. And how much is it? Sintinu Taso. I must. I must. English? Yeah, I must. ببر and uh, one kg of teff is uh, about 10 bur. Okay, so it's about 50 cent, less than 50 cent. Who sets the price for this? When there is excess uh, teff in the market, the price becomes low. 
and these days because of uh, the seed planting the time. planting time the farmers uh, uh, sell all the products that they have in their home in order to use that money for input fertilizer or for others so the price becomes low because the supply is high than the demand so essentially the more he produces the less money he's going to get for what he produces uh-huh. Actually, it, it, he said that it depends. Uh, when the, the supply increases, the, the price of uh, the product decreases. So on average, when there is uh, excess supply, the price decreases. There are markets like these all over Africa. And while they might look like simple rural affairs, the market plays a key role in survival at a subsistence level. Roger Thoreau spent 25 years covering famine in Africa for the Wall Street Journal. He's made a study of the complex causes of hunger and most recently a catastrophic food shortage in Ethiopia in 2003. At that time, he met one farmer who he says typified what could go wrong. Yeah, I had first met Tesfaya uh, in uh, an emergency feeding tent in, in Bericha in the, the highlands uh, south of, of Addis in Ethiopia. And it was kind of in the middle of the Ethiopian famine of 2003. And Tesfaya was there with his uh, small son, a five-year-old Hargirso. And Hargirso was basically on the the, the doorstep of of starvation. Uh, And they were sitting on like a little mat on the ground in kind of this olive green uh, drab tent, the tent was probably filled with several dozen uh, other children, also severely malnourished, uh, really on the doorstep of, of starvation. And Hargirso, his son, was was kind of sitting between his father's legs, so Tesfaya's legs, and Tesfaya was kind of holding onto him in a sense and almost supporting him because the children were so weak that otherwise they just would have, you know, kind of fallen over, difficult to sit up by themselves. Um, and... So I saw him sitting there, and it was it was you know gripping in the sense that he was there. He had brought his little son in, kind of on uh, uh, carrying him from from the village, uh, and kind of a donkey drawn, uh, horse drawn wagon uh, into the emergency feeding tent. And as I said, Tesfaya was was in was in very uh, bad shape, severely malnourished. And the interesting thing for my reporting at the time was obviously the human tragedy uh, that was going on and that here we were at the start of the 21st century and you had this famine uh, of such large proportions still going on. Uh, In the Ethiopian famine of 2003, there was like 14 million people uh, that were having to be fed by the outside uh, world through the World Food Program and other uh, relief agencies. And it was... I was looking into, uh, as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal at the time, so kind of what was causing this and why was this happening again? It was 19 years after the, the epic famine of 1984 where uh, kind of had the first live aid concert, the We Are the World uh, songs, kind of the, the, the international or global kind of hand-holding in, in horror of what was what was happening in Ethiopia then and all these pledges of never again, that we, we, we shouldn't let such a famine uh, and such hunger happen again. And here we were 19 years later, and it was happening again. The interesting thing was te- with Tesfaya was, so here was a, a, a farmer, a, a peasant farmer, 
subsistence farmer, smallholder farmer. And what had happened is, as I was asking him, so so what happened? And the year before, um, and 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 the, the two prior years, uh, the the farmers in Ethiopia, be they smallholder farmers like Tesfaye or some of the bigger commercial farmers that you'll find in in the highlands of Ethiopia, they had had their best. Uh, uh, seasons ever, and and their best production, their best harvest that they had ever that they had ever seen. Uh, since the famine of of 1984, there had been this big push uh, in Ethiopia and throughout Africa, but particularly in Ethiopia, to produce, 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 and to boost production. Uh, and that happened, and and hooray for that. And they had they had these bumper harvests that had come in 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 the seasons of 2000, 2001, and 2001, 2002. Uh, but what happened was that while the emphasis was on was on production and uh, getting the farmers, creating the conditions for the farmers to be as productive as possible, other aspects of kind of the agricultural value chain had been neglected, particularly the markets and 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 the post-harvest issues. So what happened after two years of of, of bumper harvest and for this man Tesfaya and the great the the harvest that he was 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 having, having surplus production for 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 a rare time in his life as a farmer. When they took it to the market, the markets were were so uh, overwhelmed with the surplus uh, in the country that prices had collapsed by 80% in some regions of the country. And that's a catastrophic drop uh, for farmers. And so be they the smallholder farmers like Tesfaya or the larger commercial farmers, when they brought their crops to the market and were getting this much lower price, they were actually losing money on the the their their surplus production it was it was less what they were getting was not even covering the the cost of their their seeds whatever little fertilizer they were using the the labor the transport to the market and everything and so their reaction as kind of farmers anywhere in the world would be uh hey the next season we have to cut back on our expenses so what happened the next year uh the farmers in reacting so we're going to cut back on our expenses. Uh, hey, you know, we had this surplus. Well, what good did that do us? We actually lost money on the surplus. Uh, they then cut back on their expenses. So they started using the less exp- the, the the less better seeds, uh, uh, the, the the hybrid seeds that would that would give them a better uh, yields as they had the years before because they were more expensive. They were just using their traditional seeds uh, that they maybe had stored and kept in the back of their their houses. Uh, they didn't. They 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 cut back on their use of fertilizer. Smallholder farmers like Tesfaya wouldn't have bothered to use fertilizer then. Um, the next year, some of the larger commercial farmers they cut back. They 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 turned off their irrigation systems. They took land out of production. Then the drought hits, and that lowered even more the the expectations of a lower harvest. That then tipped the country into into famine. So what we were writing about then, when I wrote about the Wall Street Journal and then in, in, in the book Enough, is that in Ethiopia at that time in, 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 in 2002, 2003, the markets failed before the weather did. And it was the, the markets failed the farmers uh, far before the, 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 the drought came. And, and it was the, the, mar- the farmers' just natural reaction to market conditions and the market failure and the market not being there for them um, to to uh, provide them incentive to grow as much as possible. It was the reaction of that that basically set the stage for the famine of 2003. As the rain feeds the rivers in the fertile Ethiopian highlands, famine seems far away. But for subsistence farmers, hard times are never really very far from the door. 
One Irish agency working with these farmers is Self-Help Africa, where the philosophy has moved away from handouts which create a dependency. Self-Help aims to make these farmers completely self-sufficient, even if they have as little as half a hectare. That's a single acre and a half just to feed their families. My name is uh, Tagenyuakoya. I'm working now in Sodo 2 project, project manager. Now, what you're doing here is trying to get people to change traditional farming methods. Yes, uh, as a strategy, uh, self-help Africa uh, changed the traditional to increase production and the productivity and also to food secure the farmers. We, the farmers must intensify and diversify their plot of land. Because our beneficiary is a smallholder farmer, they have less than half hectare of farmland so that to, uh, to be food secured, they have to intensify their plot of land and also diversify to avoid the risk, to minimize the risk. What you mean by food security is that if some year the rains don't come along and the crops fail, there is diversified, they are growing other things which will survive. Now, uh, diversification is one of uh, adaptation to climate change. That means if farmers grow different type of crops, different type of crops cannot fail together because some, there are some crops which uh, resist the drought and there are some crops actually which not resist. So that if the, he diversify, if he grow different type of vegetables, if he grow different type of cereal crops, therefore he cannot lose all crops at the same time. So this diversification is risk minimization. Then we intensify. He has to improve. He has to intercrop different types of crops together. For example, fruit trees with vegetable crops. Then he harvests fruit. At the same time, he harvests from vegetable crops on a small plot of land. So that he harvests three, two crops from simple plot of land. That means you, we intensify, then the production is increased. So that, that is our strategy. We're standing here in the middle of a maize field. It's about to rain. We can hear the thunder in the background. This is the type of crop that is grown here traditionally, maize. Yes, it is a maize. It is a traditionally, uh, no, it is traditional, but it is improved crops. Then if rains... And by improved up, crops, we mean GM modified. Yes, GM modified, uh, genetically improved crops. So it is high yielding crops. And at the same time, it is drought tolerant, that, rather than the traditional one. So if he grow uh, maize here, at the same time he grow vegetables, at the same time he grow another cereal crops, so that he have three, four cereal crops. So if maize fail, that F will not fail. If wheat fail, the maize will not fail. So he harvest at least from three or four crops, one. So he, he, he is still food securing rather than our beneficiary is food secured rather than non-beneficiaries because they use that, these technologies. And how do you get people, how do you persuade people to move away from the traditional way of farming to this way of farming? Yes, now we have uh, a system. We teach the model farmers, we select the model farmers, then we practice on model farmers, then the other farmers are the followers. Then the followers come again, become a model farmers then it replicates, the technology easily replicated. And so that we have now in, the, in this district more than 17,000, 17,000 
farmers we have. At the first beginning, we start from few farmers, then we uh, replicate the technology through contact follower or model follower farmers. So we focus on model farmers first, then the followers see, learn from the model farmers, and then they replicate by themselves. Is there an investment required from them, or do you help them with that? Yes, we have uh, um, some credits. Uh, we give in credit basis uh, for the model farmers. First, we give them uh, fruit trees, seedling, and then we give them the vegetable seed, and then we give uh, the improved cereal crop seeds. Then they pay a down payment first, 25%, then 75% after harvest. Then this money is revolved within the district. After the surface phase out, the money is rotated, and then the money is the poor farmers is borrowed from the district, and then the technology continues for other non-beneficiary farmers. This is a completely different mindset of aiding people rather than giving handouts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 we cannot give the farmers at free base because that develops independency. So that we give them in a credit base, they have a committee at Warada level. That committee is from district, from lime department, and from farmers. Then they put in the bank the money, the money is rotated, and then the other poor farmers who are not food insecure, they borrow the money and replicate the technology. Does this represent moving away from the traditional handout? Yeah, yeah, that is the way. In many parts of the world, and in Ireland, GM-modified seeds are a source of quite a lot of controversy, not here. Yes, not here, because you know that in Ethiopia, the majority of the farmers are food insecure so that uh, we are not worrying of uh, the genetic modified uh, uh, seeds, but we are worrying of increasing the production and feeding the people. Up in the hills, Alamayo has become a model farmer for self-help, supporting his wife, his mother-in-law and four children on an acre and a half. Working by hand with wooden tools, he grows, among other things, Irish potatoes, which thrive here. Alamayo. Alamayo. Alamayo is his name. How many acres do you have? Ratamad. Uh, Ratamad, you know? hectare. And it is one hectare. And is that enough for your family? Uh, yes, he said, uh, yes, it is enough now. We learn the technology how to use. Then we intensify. We have insect crop and apple and also vegetables. Then even uh, we produce a surplus product and uh, we went to market. It is very impressive with that, such a small area of land. You can support your whole family. Uh, now, previously, I'm not food insecure. My, my family is eight, so I'm not sending my children to school. Now, after self-help, I, I gained the knowledge of intensification and how to increase the production with a small plot of land. So that now I am producing not only for my family, also for market. Because I have a diversified type of crop, 
Uh, I have potato, I have insect, I have apple, and also I have uh, uh, banana and others also, you see. Your potatoes, these are potatoes that people would grow in their gardens in Ireland, where we come from. Thank you, you said that now uh, we are familiar with Irish potato and we produce a lot of uh, yield from uh, this potato. We have a new varieties also so that we are producing for market. I say thank you. And you have bees? Yeah. Ah. And traditionally, would you have had potatoes, bees, this banana plant? Previously, we don't know uh, this all, because I have only the local uh, beehives. Uh, This one is the modern beehives. From local beehives, they harvest 8 kg per year. From this, they harvest 60 kg per year. They have rest two times. Before you changed to intensive farming, what did you grow here? I don't. I have only the local insects, not a new variety, the local insects. But we don't have uh, potato and uh, beehives also. At the opposite end to subsistence farming are experiments in Ethiopia and large commercial farms. A new Dutch company, Africa Juice, is one of the biggest in the country. They recently bought over an old state farm of nearly 5,000 acres and invested $10 million in growing fruit and building an on-site processing plant. They have 220 full-time employees and up to 3,000 part-timers at any one time. Most live on the farm. But people here have been fur irrigating for the last 200 years. So and they're really good at it. They, they make a furrow and they make side furrows, plant the seeds by hand. This is this is going to be maize, and you know we're getting we're getting good results. Dutchman Gerald Poteus is the technical manager of Africa Juice. Well, I'm the technical manager of uh, 1,300 hectares uh, mixed farm in the high tropics in Ethiopia. Um, trying to grow a lot of stuff, but basically uh, trying to be to become a big passion fruit farm, for which we also built a factory, which which reduces the fruit to to juice, which we then pack in uh, 200 uh, kilo drums and export them. This to is a Europe. huge investment for you, 10 million dollars. Yeah. Tell me about passion fruit and why you've picked to grow them here. Passion fruit is a very very popular drink. And it's a, it's a, a juice that is being mixed with the tropical mixes in the supermarkets. The problem with the passion fruit is that it is only grown by small farmers in basically South America and especially Ecuador, where where there is a kind of a pig cycle, or there's too much, or there's too little, and and people go in and out of the crop very easily. Um, because of that, the product has a very fluctuating price uh, during the year and the manufacturers of tropical mixes uh, cannot 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 rely on a stable price so they cannot offer a stable product to the supermarkets you've decided to fix all that by building your own plant and growing your own plants amen
Okay, yes. Why passion fruit here? Because this, this climate is much drier than the climate in, in, in the countries where it's normally grown, which, which gives us much less problems with diseases, soil diseases, insect diseases, fungi diseases. They're all much less because of the dry climate, because then we can manage the water level in the soil and, and we don't get too much rain, because we, we don't get uh, too much rain, basically. And you've just, your business model is almost the opposite to what a traditional business model would be, whereby there would be small producers, you would then build a processing plant nearby. You've built the plant, you're growing the plants yourself, and Correct. then you hope that local suppliers will join in. Well, we are sure that local suppliers will join in because it gives them also, we can guarantee a, a certain price for the, for the final product because there's a world price and it doesn't fluctuate, it doesn't go down to such levels that they cannot grow it here uh, lucratively. You're bypassing the traditional market. Oh yeah. <laughs> now as well as passion fruit, you've got mango trees, orange trees, these are all here when you bought the farm. Yeah, yeah, these, are, these trees are around four or five years old and they got proper water and fertilization for the first time in their life probably because the management of the farm in the later years of the government management was not very well it was not very well done and now we, we, we up the production by around 300 percent last year and do you sell this produce other than the passion fruit is that sold locally it's, it's only sold locally and because they're not enough for, for this is a very big country of 80 million people and uh, there is there is a market for for actually quite expensive uh, luxury fruits like this. Traditionally, people in Europe would have thought of Ethiopia as a barren, sandy place. It is the exact opposite. It's an incredibly fertile country. It is quite correct. The, the problem of Ethiopia never was the fact that there was no food. The problem was always distribution of fruit or for food to the right places where there was a problem. So there is, there is the biggest cattle herd, herd in Africa, for example. You can grow here anything you want, but of course you need the capital to do it first. Yeah, and that and is that's the issue. The, that's the issue. Yes? And now they have to take a little rest. They're, 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 they're napping. Mm. But they're coming, you see this? Here comes some okay. new shoots. Do you have any regrets about coming here to Ethiopia, to Africa, to do, put in such a huge investment? No, it was not only my investment, but no, this, is, this, this country is really the last frontier of agriculture here. Incredible things can be done and will be done in the near future, so no regrets. The government is, government is very supportive and the government understands that this is an agriculture country and you have to stimulate as much as possible, so, so it's a pleasure to work here. But if food production is one plank of securing the future for agricultural families here, then the marketplace is the second. Back in Addis Ababa, the government has been proactive in attempting to modernise the commodity markets. Ethiopia, in my view, is fully capable of feeding itself. Uh, there is no reason why we will continue to be characterised as a food insecure, hungry nation um, always having to depend on others to save our lives. Th that is absolutely not our historical pattern and it need not be our future. Uh, so in my view, if we can get not just the markets, but even more importantly, a sense of empowerment 
of our small producers a sense that they can actually reach their yield potential. Ethiopia's farmers today are one-fourth of what they can actually produce on the land that they currently have. So if their yields have an 80% increase potential, if, if, they, if they get paid on time, if they get fair returns, if they can turn around and invest in productive technology such as fertilizer, uh, irrigation, uh, etc., then I think we're going to do what we need to be, what we what we can achieve, which is which is a food secure nation. Along with that, I think there have been many important investments over the last decade um, in this country. Uh, literacy has gone up very dramatically. Uh, investment in rural health has gone up. Investment in rural electrification uh, and um, and telecommunications. All of these things together. I think will sum up to what I hope to be a very bright future. Dr. Elani Gabre-Madin is the founder of the new Ethiopian Commodity Exchange. It's like a stock market for commodities in Addis, which grew out of the 2003 famine. Um, basically, we, we have been in these boom and bust cycles you know, for decades. And it's not just Ethiopia, it's across the continent. Uh, and so one of the things that you know I pointed out in 2003, early 2003, was uh, you know, a situation of a trader called Abdu Awol in western Ethiopia, who was a grain trader who, if there was a properly functioning market, would have bought up when the prices were low and sold later when the prices were high. And the story uh, that I uh, told at the time was related to me by this gentleman who said that he tried to buy it when it was low uh, and take it across the country to the north uh, where there was actually a food deficit and prices were starting to rise because of these failing rains. And uh, it took him two weeks to transport uh, maize uh, from where he uh, was based in western Ethiopia up to the north in, in uh, Tigray, which is the traditional sort of deficit area of the country. And it said he said by the time he got it up there, he'd been stopped about 27 times on the, all the road stops. Uh, he got to, the, to that northern market where he'd heard that prices were rising and where he had one contact that had told him, bring your maize, well, I'll buy it for you, from you. And he got there and, and the gentleman said to him, hey, you know, when did we talk about price? What, you know, what's this commodity? What's this base? Oh, it's not a good quality. I'm not buying it. So this guy went out of business because he he sold it practically at a you know at a at a throwaway price because he had no choice. And he told me, I'll never do this again. I'll never try to do what markets should always do, which is to, you know, stabilize supply from where it's surplus to where it's in deficit. So that was really the story that kind of portrayed how getting markets right had a direct implication for food security. The exchange is based on openness and they tell farmers what price their produce is getting on the Addis International Exchange. If prices are too low, the farmer can opt to store some or all of his crops in a government warehouse until prices improve. And I I think why it it became something that caught on um, is because it made sense. Uh, We had to figure out how going beyond just producing more, how are we going to distribute it better? Uh, For that matter, one of the reasons I got into this business to begin with is because even in 1984, there was actually a surplus of grain in southwestern Ethiopia during a time where a million people actually died of starvation. Uh, So food aid cannot be how we stabilize or run our markets. We have to have internal logistics market information, transport, storage systems that allow markets to do what markets should do, which is 
efficiently, uh, you know, uh, allocate uh, supply from where it's produced to where it's needed. And this is the history of, of markets all around the world. So for us here in Ethiopia, the, the idea was that we needed to get our domestic house in order. We needed to create a supply chain that would be uh, efficient and transparent uh, and allow anybody to trade with anybody. So from whatever corner of the country uh, a commodity is produced, it should be able to be sold uh, as fast as possible, as efficiently as possible, and as risklessly as possible uh, to anybody who needs it in the country. And you deal even with very small farmers, small traders, and it's been a huge success story. So far, you've only been going for two or three years. Yes, we just finished our third year. Uh, and we did some things that made our exchange different from any other exchange in the world. Uh, the first being that we had a very explicit a- a commitment to think small, uh, or rather to to be able to reach the small actor, uh, whether they were smallholder farmers or small uh, traders. And uh, that's a little bit different from the typical traditional exchange model, which is really a big boy's business. Uh, and we said in this country, given the nature of our economy, the fact that many small actors and small lots of production uh, was what characterized our, our, our market, we needed to be able to reach uh, the smallest unit possible. So yes, we have a, a lot of smallholder farmers that are organized into cooperatives and selling through the exchange. Uh, and we've seen a very significant increase in the take-home returns that they're getting. Because even if they sell in the local market, they now have a national market that they can re- reference their price to. Uh, they will get paid uh, when they do sell through our exchange. They will get paid within 24 hours. We are the only exchange in Africa, uh, stock exchange or commodity exchange, to do payment clearing and settlement in 24 hours. In fact, in less than 24 hours. So anything traded up to 5 p.m. will get uh, settled. The payment will be settled by f- by 11 a.m. the next morning. That in itself is probably the biggest impact on small traders and small farmers because I always say that the biggest creditor in Africa is not Barclays or Standard or any other big bank. It's the little farmer because they frequently sell on credit and they face the burden of the entire risk that if prices fall, they will will get paid less, they may not get paid at all, their payment will be delayed. So giving them a transparent and fair system will change their lives. And we're starting to see, even in this short period of time, uh, what the power of a transparent and efficient market can do. When it all works, rural life in Ethiopia can be as idyllic as anything Yates or De Valera imagined. Shaggy is another farmer in the self-help program, and she and her family have less than one acre to live on. Shaggy is a with my translator Munira, Shaggy showed us around her tiny farm. The scale is small and the amounts of money are tiny. There are about 20 Ethiopian burr to the euro. But with diversification and intense labour, people can make a living even in these tiny spaces. She's living with her family. This compound is for her and her family members. Actually, this one is for chicken, and uh, she used this uh, improved uh, chicken, which, which was brought from Myrish. She has about uh, <coughs> five chicken, and uh, uh, she... How many of you have to go? Yes, I have to go. 
on average, she gets about 30 eggs, and she sells one egg with one, one bird. So this is a good means to generate income from this. These this are beehives. Uh, she used the traditional beehives. And uh, actually, she, pro- she produces uh, this honey twice a year. And uh, uh, in October, she earns about uh, uh, 13 kg, and she sold it with 65 per. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the major difference between traditional beehives and the modern one is the modern one is it's more uh, usable and it's conver- com- convenient enough uh, to use uh, honey. The other difference is uh, production. If you look at the production, on the traditional beehives they earn about 3 kg, while on the modern one they earn about 10 kg. She generates uh, different incomes. Yeah. From beehives, yeah, sure. the eggs, poultry eggs, and also she work on fattening, mm. and also she have a backyard. From backyard, different vegetables. She has coffee also. So she's a model for women. Um, uh, Shage, uh, she's uh, making her living uh, uh, out of these uh, agricultural products and uh, she's supporting her sisters and brothers uh, who are learning at the college level and she's uh, the one who supports them financially uh, to carry on their education in a very smooth way. Shaggy grows coffee among everything else, a staple of Ethiopian life. These seedlings were provided by Self Help Africa, and actually she didn't uh, collect uh, to sell it, but uh, some of uh, the, the products helped them not to buy coffee from uh, market because these days the coffee becomes very expensive so that saved them to save uh, uh, not to buy from outside actually they are uh, the major consumers of coffee they uh, they they make uh, coffee three times a day and uh, on average an individual may take about three cups uh, so uh, they take the seed of this coffee and uh, uh, they uh, uh, ground it and make it. They mm-hmm. first they toast it first and ground it. Then uh, they they uh, uh, boil it and consume it three times a day. The other thing is Shaggy is uh, one of the strong manager in her uh, primary cooperative and she became model for others. She said that, uh, you know, I, I feel that I'm a model for others. And uh, the society considered me as a model because uh, first I tried things uh, and I try as much as possible to learn for, uh, to, to, to share my experience for others. Firstly, in my uh, primary cooperatives, uh, there are about 86 women. 
So I share for them what is what I have got with training as with other things. The other thing is with health extension workers. They they collect other women from other uh, districts and they uh, they show me how I'm working and how I'm using these modern technologies. So with this, I feel that I'm a model for others. That's her word. And they brought these hens from Ireland. It's considered an improved uh, Irish chicken. Yeah, that is the name. It's very strange. Very name. strange. Even you, you cannot find it easily. Just that is uh, with facilitation of self-help with research uh, uh, centers, uh, we brought for them. It's very productive when we compare it with the traditional uh, chickens. Yeah. But there are drawbacks to living in a small rural community. Shaggy has a tiny disability, a barely noticeable limp, but it was enough to ensure that she is still single. She is a mother for the woman because she is disabled. Again, she is a hard worker because the disability cannot determine the people. If the people work hard, they become rich. And is that why yeah. she never married because she has yeah, a dis- I disability? Think so. I think so. I don't know exactly, but I think so, yeah. Now last she is time, strong. Last time I asked her okay. about this issue. Because uh, the society, you know, doesn't accept yeah, yeah. a woman who is disabled for marriage. But with all these challenges, you know, she overcome and she's doing her best to show her strengths. As well as the strangely named improved Irish chicken, there are the self-help Irish potatoes among many other crops. Uh, this one is garlic. Garlic? Yeah. Garlic. Yeah. I see. This one is potato. Lavender? Yamandan. Yamandan is a type of spices. Uh, it's for cosmetics. Uh, and potatoes. The potato is not a traditional crop for here. Okay. Um, previously, potato was not traditionally produced crop, but gradually. We were accustomed to produce this one because uh, self-help uh, uh, promoted this uh, potato in this area. When it is pro- pro- promoted and produced here, it becomes very productive. So for the first time, she produced about uh, 17 k, uh, uh, 27 quintal. Uh, and on the next year, she produced about 70. Yeah, 7 o. 1700. No, 17. Okay. So on the first time, she produced about seven, 27 quintal. Ah. Uh, then on the second year, she produced about 17 quintal. How much land do you have here? One-fourth of a hectare. A quarter of a hectare? Yeah, yeah. Is quarter that of a hectare. That means 2.5 hectare. 0.25 hectare. Yeah, 0.25 hectare. 
quarter of hectare. So it's a very, very small. Very, very small, small, yeah, it is very small. So But she 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 is intensifying on this yeah. amount of land. She harvests two, two cycles of uh, yeah. Irish potato, and she produces garlic, and at backyard she have uh, coffee, tomato, inset, tomato yeah. and other vegetables. Yeah. If it is cereals, it is totally, it is almost none. Yeah. Because she can't produce even one quintal from quarter of hectare. Yeah. But It is vegetable so that she produced 27 quintal of potato mm -hmm. because it's highly high productive so that she can sell more than percent shed. And what you have? And what about two centimeters? No? Uh, 20 times. Yeah, more than 3,000 Ethiopian. Mm. That's a fair cycle. In the second cycle, she sells with. Uh, More than 2,000. More than 2,000. Yeah, more than 2,000. That's only from potato. Only from potato. Mm. Our garlic is very expensive. Per kg is 72 per now. Yeah, 72. 72 per, yes. per kg. So that if she harvests from this, maybe one quintal, she can get a lot of money. Mm. So she sells another beekeeping she has. She has a poultry, egg selling. Then the income is increasing. Also diversified. It is not only from one source, mm. from different source. Mm. That makes her income increasing from time to time, mm. so that she built house in the town, mm. and she have house in the town, and she is renting the house, so that she her income is diversified. Mm. So no more poverty now. Later, when we partook of Shaggy's hospitality in her traditional African home, you had to think that this was a lifestyle Yates would have approved of. Homegrown coffee, roasted on a charcoal fire, sweetened by honey from the hives outside the door. Self-sufficiency in all things. Sitting in Ireland, it's very easy to forget that the very last thing people like Shaggy want are handouts. For them, development aid means just being given a chance and a little bit of help to help themselves. So we passed the roasted coffee around so everybody yes, can smell. Yes, that's why we, everybody should smell it. Yes, uh, so. that's why they roast three times per day. Yeah. Because they want the smell. We've got our coffee, we'll try it. <laughs> wow. Make Sweet with honey. Very honey. <laughs> I like Shaggy's coffee. So grown yes, just outside tasty. the door. Sweet with honey, grown from just outside the door. <laughs> It is Starbucks at age. It's better. <laughs> very tasty coffee. 